Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and I'm excited to have with me today, Sean Curran. Hi, Sean. How are you, Nabil? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Sean is a senior director in the West Monroe Partners technology practice based in Chicago. Specializing in cybersecurity, he has more than 20 years of business consulting and large-scale infrastructure experience across a range of industries and IT domains. Sean's experience has given him great insight into the operational technology issues surrounding most organizations and also the business impact of information technology. Sean has been in the consulting space since 2004 and has provided risk management and strategic advice to many of the top tier clients. Prior to consulting, Sean held multiple roles within the National Australia Bank. During this time with NAB, Sean led the development of security standards and architectures for the organization's network and infrastructure environment and developed strategies and architecture for cost-effective management of the institution's internal clients and external customer-facing end-user technologies, such as ATMs, point-of-sale terminals, teller terminals, and user workstations. When Sean isn't traveling and scuba diving with sharks, he spends his downtime pimping out cars, so we will try to learn more about his endeavors there as well. So, Sean, tell us about how you got started with security. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, a longer tale, but uh, I was working at the, at the bank uh, at NAB, uh, back in the early 2000s, and um, we we were hit with the NIMDA virus, and it really affected uh, the majority of the network infrastructure. Um, took out almost all of our ATM terminals. We were unable to d- dispense cash at ATMs, affected most of the branch network, and we probably spent about a week fighting NIMDA, and, and NIMDA was one of the first sort of worm viruses that that managed to burrow, once it got onto the Windows platform, managed to uh, start to affect or, or spread itself through an unpatched vulnerability in the Windows platform. And so we had to try and figure out how to you know, stop it from infecting new machines. Uh, and we had a very defined standard system environment. So even rolling out a patch was, was going to take uh, a week or two to be able to deliver the patch before we could uh, validate it didn't break other things. So. I sort of started there. I, my my family comes from a law enforcement background, so I sort of had a little bit of an elk towards it. I spent some time in the military as well, um, so I had a, a, an inkling towards it. But um, it really started to take off there, um, dealing with the NIMDA virus, and then the fallout of that. Looking at our network infrastructure at the bank and, and realizing, while we had an infrastructure uh, that was built, you know. You know, pre 2000s uh, around the mainframe and the, the token ring environment, it really did lack any true security. Um, you know, at the time, the bank was was not really understanding how to deploy TCP/IP networks. It, it was a mainframe team that had been used to develop, delivering serial connections and and the like, and they hadn't necessarily identified all of the areas where there was a risk to the organization through connecting to the internet and the, the TCP IP protocol that, that we were operating on. 
So I spent a fair bit of time re-architecting uh, our network infrastructure, redeploying all of the um, controls that needed to be in place on all of the routers, switches and firewalls that we have to, to lock it down and make it more secure. And that's basically how I got started. It was very much an infrastructure-driven security control implementation. So it's fair to say you stumbled into security because of the virus and that kind of catapulted your career in this space ever since. So how did how badly did the NIMDA virus truly impact the organization? And, you know, kind of a follow-up to that is, these wormable viruses, why are they so dangerous and, and what problems do they typically cause an organization when they are first released? Yeah, the, the Nimna virus, like I said, it, it took down branches and ATMs. I think we, you know, at one point um, we would clean out a branch or think we'd clean the branch and then a day later it was back again. And so, you know, it was this whack-a-mole process of attempting to, you know, remove the virus out of the, the network uh, off the Windows PCs. And at the time, NIMDA would basically scan the network. Any infected machine would scan the network, look for a um, an unpatched vulnerable system and then apply itself to it. And once it got onto that vulnerable system, that system would then spread out and do the same thing. But it didn't, it didn't um, limit itself to the, the local subnet. And so within a, a large organization, and we had somewhere around a thousand branches, if I remember rightly, um, it was literally spreading across every branch and it just flooded the network with network traffic because you get 30 machines all with the NIMDA virus, that's 30 machines is now trying to hit every single IP address. It basically created a network storm and, and that's what we were dealing with. Um, yeah, and that's, that's the problem with these worms is if you don't address the underlying method of their transmission, that's, it's catastrophic. Uh, it's very hard to, to know what is clean and what isn't. And some of the more sophisticated ones we see today that, that aren't necessarily taking advantage of vulnerabilities so much, it, so much as network uh, weaknesses. You know, if I think about TrickBot and Emotet and the way it is, once it's compromised the administrative credentials, using administrative shares to, to transmit and, and uh, communicate across the network, or using some of the, um, the eternal blue compromises we see to, to transmit. You may not know that your machine's now the, the infection. It's, it's actually a really good um, you know, likeness to what's going on with the pandemic right now that we're I all dealing with. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, like what are the parallels here to the current situation that we're in, uh, having to social distance and why? Yeah, some of the more, um, you know, if I think to TrickBot and Emotet that we're dealing with in, in breaches today, very similar in the sense that you could have a machine without, that isn't, you know, providing any of the symptoms that, that make you look at that machine and say there's a problem. And we see that in, in breaches, right? The, the system that I use to connect into your environment and spread out and, and execute the uh, attack may be the point of entry, but there may be 25 of those other machines sitting there waiting to be to be used. So I can't just take out one machine. I've got to take them all out. I've got to clean all of that environment. And I think that's some of the, the mistakes we've seen people make is they look at the machine or the point of entry as being the the thing that I need to clean and, and address. Well, if there's 25 more back doors, they've still got an entry point into the environment and I need to get rid of all 25, not just the one. And that's what we see with these worms is knowing what is clean and knowing what is is an infected machine is 
is what we're trying to identify when we talk about indicators of compromise. Which of the systems are the ones that are a problem and which ones are the, the systems that may not be displaying any symptoms right now, but are still infected. Um, we, we also see that, you know, again, in, in a lot of the ransomware cases, which is a lot of what we deal with at the moment, um, you'll have two types of machines. You'll have infected machines, those that are actually carrying malware, and then we'll have affected machines, machines that may have been encrypted, but not actually infected. And we always have to distinguish between the two when we talk about how we remediate. That's true. So given your experience with the rise of a, a pandemic like we are in now, I know that there is an increasing number of scammers out there and phishing emails and malware that are getting propagated throughout the internet. What would you say are some challenges that organizations are facing, especially from like a disaster recovery planning or business continuity planning with having to shift their workforce to a work from home model where, where possible, and also having to deal with all the challenges around hackers and threats that are leveraging this time period and uh, a time of uncertainty to exploit the vulnerability side from a people perspective. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of challenges that come in. Um, you know, most people that I see or most organizations that I see weren't necessarily geared up for this. You know, you've got those that may have a predominantly desktop PC type infrastructure. And now you're all of a sudden asking everyone to work from home without a laptop. How do I do that? You know, the, the ability to source hardware right now is extremely difficult. So if I want to move to that sort of environment, uh, how do I do so? So what you're saying is a lot of organizations had documented processes that they never really tested before. Correct. Or never at scale. I, you know, I, I might think about mm -hmm. a single building that, that got affected in a localized fashion, but, and that's probably the same, you know, when we talk about cybersecurity risks, right? Um, many people may have, you know, in this, especially in the US here, the ability to withstand or to, to have a disaster recovery plan that covers Florida, for instance, with, with all the um, hurricanes and the like that come through. But when you start to talk about, or, or the cyclones, when you start to talk about, I'm affecting the entire country or now I'm affecting the entire world, how do I withstand that? And that's what we often said about cyber attacks is they're not localized to a particular region. I can't manage that process in the sense that I'm only gonna lose a single building or a single data center. Most people were, were geared up to be able to survive a single entity impact, the single location. So I might have disaster recovery. I may do manufacturing in three different regions so that if one region was hit, my other two regions survive. The pandemic doesn't, it, it crosses borders. It doesn't actually get localized to a single region. And I think that's where most people's disaster recovery and, and business continuity plans are failing is, is that widespread global impact. I can't define it on borders. I can't define it on um, boundaries here, I'm going to have to think about this widespread. So I know for a fact that you work very closely with organizations after a breach as well. Do you have any recommendations on what some of the first steps are that an organization should take if one of their employees or multiple employees have fallen victim to some of these scam emails or some type of a ransomware attack? Yeah, I think first thing is to, to understand the point at which uh, they fall victim to the point at which you become aware. I think that's one of the things that the people sometimes don't recognize, even with traditional antivirus. The day the antivirus 
program tells you that you have a virus isn't the same as the, the day you got the virus necessarily. Um, and so, you know, what's that time in between? If someone clicks on a link, what's the first thing that the link did? Was it credential stealing or was it malware dropping? You need to understand those. And there's some pretty cool uh, toolboxes out there. We use a, a product called Joe's Sandbox, um, which allows us to drop either an email or an application or, or something like that or point it to a website and it will tell us, blow that up and tell us what are all the things it did. And it gives us an idea of, okay, was this credential stealing or was this malware dropping? So once I understand that, I can start to say, all right, what's the next thing? If it's credential stealing, what do those credentials that the user have have access to? And I've got to think holistically, right? If I gave away, if that user gave up their internal credentials, are they reusing that for banking platforms? Are they reusing that for you know, their HRIS systems? I think people think myopically around Active Directory. You need to start thinking beyond that, especially as we've started to use cloud services. And, and if I'm not using SSO or some kind of uh, authentication management tool, I could have that same password used somewhere else and the attackers could potentially use that. We, we actually saw one the other day where the credentials were used to, to access another uh, social media platform uh, completely outside of what was expected. They used Slack as a means of communicating, right? So without having the ability to secure that, it's a new platform, a new delivery mechanism. But with the way in which social uh, communication is happening on almost every platform, call it Salesforce, call it you know, Slack, call it anything else, everything has this social component to it. There's a new delivery mechanism. So we need to understand that the attackers can start to use every delivery mechanism that exists out there and secure those. So why are organizations so prone to breaches? Is it a budget issue, technology issue, people issue, a combination of all three? All of the above. Um, you know, each organization is different. I think people is always hard. Uh, it's very difficult to to educate. Um, I think often, some often we see a wrong focus. We see them still thinking about data and compliance and security is built around compliance. Um, sometimes it, it is purely budget. We don't have the budget. Although I've seen some organizations with a very small number of people, a very low budget do some really amazing things. And that really does come down to the capability of the individuals involved and, and how interested they are in security. Um, I think the other part is still that cultural issue of security being the security team's responsibility. It's not, right? It's, it's everyone's responsibility. Uh, and I think IT needs to be the first people to get on board with that and recognize that it's their responsibility. They can be some of the, the hardest people culturally to change. Um, you know, multi-factor authentication for administration should be really easy for an IT person to understand that. Yet sometimes they're the ones who who complain the most. So, so I think it's a mixture of everything, and each organisation different. Um, but the reality is, we're often focused on the past and not what the next attack method is. The attackers are very good at figuring out what we used to look at and ignoring it and moving on to the next uh, delivery mechanism, but also learning from the past. Um, we see the attackers re reusing some of the old schemes um, because people have become sort of uh, numb to those methods and, and start moving on. You know, um, great one right now that we see, or, or not necessarily great, but interesting one is the attackers are, are combining two different attack methods 
methods. They're combining, well, three effectively. Credential stealing to start to get access to email platforms. Instead of using that email platform to, to try and convince you to deliver something, they'll actually use your email to send to one of your trusted trusted parties. So they'll use the impersonation attacks, the, the CEO type impersonation attacks, but to external parties. And then they'll deliver their, their malware that way. Um, and so you know, trying to train your users to not click on social engineering type messages works great when the message is something that is not solicited. But if you expect a customer, one of your customers to send you an invoice or, or one of your suppliers to send you an invoice, you're going to open an invoice from that supplier. So if that supplier's email is compromised and used to deliver fake invoices, it's very hard to, t to train your users. You can't expect them not to click on something that they're expecting. Uh, so there's different ways in which you're going to have to look at that risk factor and, and how you address it. It's the human element of when you expect something, your guards are down. You know, you're not as right. cautious about opening something. I have a very interesting experience as being part of a, a phishing campaign uh, internal training session where it was around the time of year when we annually got our whole team, whole organization to click on a link and acknowledge that they had read the updated information security policies and standards for the organization. So that original email came out and then our phishing campaign took that email as a template and resent it out to people. So yep. it, had, it had two effects. People who clicked on it once, they thought the first time it didn't work. So they just naturally clicked on it again to make sure it gets registered, that they acknowledged it. So they would have to put their credentials in. Or people who hadn't done it in the first place, they thought it was a reminder email. So they clicked on it anyways, and then they went ahead and gave their credentials. The funniest thing about that one was one of our IT board members who was part of the planning process for that phishing campaign still fell victim to that campaign just to show you, you know, how vulnerable we are uh, from and how the human condition makes us more vulnerable than we might think. I, I did the same thing. And in fact, when I was setting it up, I was talking to uh, to a gentleman who who was part of our sort of risk and privacy committee. And he told me, include me in it. I'm not going to fall victim to it. And uh, we used a LinkedIn profile, a LinkedIn request for a new employee. You can see that really quickly. And so we just sent everyone a connect a LinkedIn connection message. Now, the only thing we were able to get would have been uh, LinkedIn passwords. But 80% of the people clicked on it because, hey, this was a new person starting with the organization. I want to show I'm connected to these people. And so everyone clicked on it. But if that password is shared across other systems, I can absolutely use that password to get into to other components. So it's really easy to, to, to look at what is, and as you say, that connectedness. It, there's certain behaviors that the human, you know, no matter what we try to ingrain in people is going to, we're always going to click and, and that's exactly what happened. This this gentleman got it. He was the first person to click on it, despite telling me he wasn't going to fall victim. And there's a, there's another, this reminds me of another funny instance where we did a phishing campaign where we pretended like we were giving away Red Sox tickets to the Red Sox versus Yankees game that was coming up. And we had sent it out to a hundred employees within the organization. The organization was about a thousand employees we got back more than 400 responses because people were forwarding the email to their friends, asking them to respond. 
And we actually had to stop the campaign immediately when we got credentials from one of their C-level executives trying to win this uh, free Red Sox ticket. I mean, we're, we're seeing that, you know, even today on, on social media, you know, people sending out the um, almost the surveys, you know, tell me what your first car was. Well, guess what? All of the questions have been asked <laughs> are all of the, the questions that are typically used as your password reset mechanism. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and recognizing just how easy it is or it, it's going back probably 10 years ago now. I remember, you know, someone did a special where they were standing in a car park and handing out a candy bar for anyone willing to give them their password and everyone handing, giving them their password for the free candy bar, <laughs> which you know blows me away. We're talking about a, a 50 cent candy bar or something like that. People were giving up their passwords, but they assumed that they wouldn't know what to do with the password. You didn't have to give them any other credential. The problem right. is they're walking around with badges with their names on it and their company name. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that they had that person now had the company name, they had their na- employee name and the password, mm-hmm. everything you needed. Yeah. Without two-factor or multi-factor authentication, they're pretty much exposed now because you can guess potentially what the email address is going to look like and, and then use the password. That's exactly. brilliant. Yeah. And it's amazing what people will give up for a candy bar. Um, so that's, that's the lesson learned. It doesn't matter you know, how much. Food, I think food is another oh, human element weakness that, that, that people need to exploit more often, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. Fact, I'm not surprised. I won't be surprised if the virus and the pandemic we're in is because of people sharing food and, and how we handle food <laughs> and groceries. Um, yeah. So you said something that's very interesting to me. You mentioned that um, a lot of organizations are very compliance driven. And mm-hmm. you have a, a tremendous amount of experience being a, a PCI QSA. Uh, I believe it's almost a decade of experience being a QSA in your in your career. So, you know, can you share with us, first of all, what is a QSA? And then what does a day in the life of a QSA look like? Yeah, so a QSA is a qualified security assessor. It's a designation by the, uh, the PCI, the payment card industry's um, Security Standards Council that defines someone who's certified to be able to validate compliance uh, with the PCI DSS or, or other certifications within that. Um, you know, it's something I try to block out of my memory nowadays, but uh, it's something. It, it, Was it really that painful? <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 challenge with it, with being a QSA is it's a fairly adversarial role, um, as much as it wasn't designed to be, and any audit role can be adversarial nobody nobody hears the word auditor uh, or audit and uh <laughs> and welcome and you in there into they the want to welcome that person you know whether it's the irs or anything else they hear audit and they run um but the role was really defined um to try and put some structure around certification with with the pci dss and the pci standard i i still to this day think it's one of the best security standards out there in terms of its completeness you know, compared to a lot of the other frameworks that are very policy-driven or, or um, process-driven, the PCI DSS tries to combine that with security control. Um, you know, but ultimately, the, the role of the QSA sort of plays it, it, it is to validate compliance, but often it, it sort of structures around three different phases. The first is the initial uh, assessment of compliance. Um, that will typically ask, require the organisation to remediate anything that was not compliant in a, within a time frame, um, And so there's an advisory capacity in during that remediation phase uh, on advising what would or would not be compliant 
Uh, and then there's the, the final reporting piece. And it's the reporting piece that probably has given me a little bit of PTSD in the sense that we had to write 400 page page reports that validated that we we checked and valid and confirmed everything was there the the challenge um with that role it quite often is that the standard itself can be interpreted uh, differently based on experience so the way one qsa reads it may be different from the way another one reads it and so you you can misinterpret that um there is a lot of supplemental guidance that you need to keep up with. And, and that's one that we've seen, you know, organizations struggle with. They read it one way, they believed it worked that way, but there was, you know, supplemental guidance that tells you what it really meant, um, you know, because the standard didn't tell you what it really meant. Um, so the role of the QSA is to, to stay abreast of all of the, not just the PCI DSS itself, but all the supplemental guidance and FAQs and things like that, and to provide interpretation around compliance. Um, but it's the human element and experience element that comes in that determines whether or not, you know, two QSAs agree. You get two QSAs in a room and chances are they won't agree on every part of it. <laughs> That's true. Great. And then so let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I know that you're an avid scuba diver and you've had some very unique experiences and your vacations typically revolve around scuba diving. So can you tell us a little bit more about your hobby of, of scuba and what interesting experiences or locations has it taken you to? Yeah, so I, I started scuba diving, I think it was around 15 or 20 years ago now. I've, I've probably done about 100 different dives, um, everywhere from Fiji to Thailand to uh, Galapagos Islands, uh, Caymans, so Caribbean, Pacific, um, Mostly uh, saltwater. I haven't done as much freshwater or I haven't done any freshwater diving yet, which uh, is on the list despite living next to one of the biggest uh, Great Lakes. Um, I, I will at some point dive the lake, but it's a little too chilly for my liking. I don't want to get into the dry suit diving yet. Um, but typically, uh, I, I enjoy diving with sort of the larger creatures and, and experiencing that. So. I've done some really cool dives uh, with manda rays and eagle rays, um, which were, were really interesting. Um, part of the reason we went to Galapagos was to dive with hammerheads. I really love the hammerhead shark, and so I wanted to be able to dive with hammerheads. Um, but I got an opportunity uh, to, my, wife, my wife's a, a physical therapist, and when she was doing her uh, physical therapy school, uh, she got to do a clinical rotation in Belize, working with the, the local Belizeans. Um, and it was actually at the point at which I was changing jobs. And so I had a couple of weeks to myself and, and went down to Belize uh, and, and spent a fair bit of time scuba diving down there. But we got to scuba dive with the whale sharks. Um, and that was probably one of the more, more amazing dives I've ever done. This school bus sized animal that, that uh, sort of emerges from the deep below you and, and swims past you and, and gets pretty close at the end of the day. You're sort of a, a group of divers that are sort of, uh, you sort of, you ring around and the main diver um, starts to agitate the water and, and blow bubbles and agitate the bubbles. And it looks like little micro uh, organisms in the water, which is what attracts the whale sharks. And they mm -hmm. only come out around full moon because uh, that's when the, the um, I think it's the snapper spawning. And so they, that's what they're trying to replicate is the snapper spawning. Um, and so the, this whale shark will suddenly emerge out of the, out of the depths because I assume, I assume visibility is pretty low, so you don't really see it until it's up close to you. 
Yeah, you're about 60 feet. So it starts to get pretty dark around there and all the colours start to merge together and they're that blue uh, colour, um, blue spotted colour. So you don't see it until almost it's on top of you and, and all of a sudden there's this looming shadow below you and then it rushes past, <laughs> chasing the bubbles. And But it is just amazing to watch this whale shark driving, uh, swimming around. But we've, you know, we've dove with... Um, with a lot of sharks. I also got a chance to go down to Stuart Cove in Bahamas and dive with um, the shark during the shark feeding. And so they sit you down on the bottom of the water and they bring out a box of feed and, and start feeding all of the uh, the um, black tipped and white tipped reef sharks. And so you're sitting on the on the bottom as these sharks come past and they're literally whipping your face um, as they swim past. <laughs> so. It's a bit of an amazing experience. You have to you have to keep all, all of your uh, extremities pretty close to your body so they don't assume that your hand is a fish or something like that. But uh, being whipped by a shark's tail as it goes past you is, is an amazing experience. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those ones that sometimes not for the faint-hearted, um, you know, whether it's sharks or stingrays or some of these other animals. Uh, I still think the barracuda is a much scarier-looking animal than a, than a shark is, but... Uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun scuba diving and, and exploring a different part of the world and, and getting used to being uncomfortable because uh, that's, you know, in scuba diving world, you have to, you have to sort of get used to that um, floating feeling and, and being a little bit uncomfortable uh, while then and trying vulnerable. to And more vulnerable, vulnerable than your natural yeah. habitat, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no way you're going to be able to take out a shark in, in those situations uh, if they really want to come at you. So there's a little bit of vulnerabilities, a little bit of uh, um, uncomfortable that you just have to get used to. And it's, it's a great experience. And then the last question for you, uh, when we last spoke, you mentioned that you have a new project at home where you're pimping out a Jeep for your daughter. So you want to tell us a little bit more about that project? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Santa Claus bought a, uh, a Power Wheels uh, Jeep, frozen Jeep for my daughters. And uh, I was looking at this Jeep and it's, it's all wonderful. Like they were driving it around and my neighbor tells me that there's a little screw in the uh, gear shifter that if you take it out, it gets a little quicker. So <laughs> I took the screw out and of course it got a little quicker and my, my uh, four and a half year old daughter starts getting excited by how much quicker this Jeep went. So I jumped online and started looking into this a little bit more. And I found all of these YouTube videos of people uh, speeding their Jeeps up even further um, to the extreme where someone actually built a, a full cage and put a, uh, a combustion engine in theirs. But I didn't go that far. <laughs> but I found that you've got the ability to uh, increase the power on the Jeep just by increasing the battery output. So they come with a standard 12-volt battery. Um, you can hook up your electric power drill, 18-volt batteries to these things pretty quickly. So I started with that and then realized I had a 56-volt uh, battery sitting in my shed that let's see how 56-volt goes and ended up stripping the motors and, and a few other things. So <laughs> right now I've been playing around trying to figure out what's the, the right uh, output. I ended up buying new motors for it and, and pimping it out. My daughter just loves it. Um, you know, one of the most amazing things to see is a, a four-and-a-half-year-old get into a Jeep and I've got a nice long driveway. Driveway is about uh, 100 feet long, so it's a, it's a good run up for them. She gets the power up. But with the extra power uh, in these Jeeps, they only have an on-off switch. So it's either full power or no power. I see. Um, 
And so you get a lot of wheel spinning happening, uh, which takes me back to my old days of an 18 year old learning to drive. Um, <laughs> and then she started to manage to get this thing to drift. And wow, without that's any, fantastic. Yeah, it was great. So she'd come up to the corner and she'd start drifting, but without any training whatsoever, instinctively turned into the drift and corrected the car and kept going. And that was probably the biggest proud dad moment I've ever had was watching my four and a half year old daughter drift this car, turn into the drift and keep moving forward. Like I've seen professional drivers do, but I've, I've seen plenty of people who are, have been driving for years, not recognize how to actually do that. And she was doing it instinctively. So I was, I was pretty proud after uh, pimping out this Jeep, watching her driving and, uh, and driving like a true champion. So a bit of fun on that. Well, maybe there's a professional race car driver in the making in your family, I guess. We'll, we'll, we'll have to keep in touch and find out more on, on where that goes. Well, Sean, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you. Hopefully, once this uh, pandemic uh, is resolved, we get to hang out in person. Sounds good. I look forward to it. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.